up your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 25. In the month of December, it could not be more timely as we get closer to Christmas and to New Year's to begin to speak about the practical conditions of what it looks like to live in a covenant community, speak, uh, how we speak to one another, how we treat one another, uh, issues of, of uh, anger and belongings. All of these things will begin to float to the top as the gospel begins to prod them in our hearts. And we're going to start in verse 25 with the tongue and the things that we say to one another. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Paul says this, since you put away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members one of another. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we remember today, as we get closer to the end of the month in which we commonly celebrate together that incarnation, the day that the Word became flesh and dwelt among sinners, we remember again that our hope is not in ourselves. We have an alien righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Our Savior comes from heaven to redeem sinners for the glory of the Father. And so we ask, Lord, that even as we open up the Word of God, these verses that speak about behavior and speak about actions and speak about the things that we do and the things that we say, I pray that in reading these things, that Holy Spirit, you would supernaturally open our eyes and fixate our gaze upon Jesus Christ and not simply behaviors. I pray that today we would leave this place with the grand view of the Son of God, the Messiah who came to redeem broken people for his own glory. And we pray that we broken people would be redeemed and put back together by the power of the gospel today. I ask for comfort in this house, for peace, for those men and women that have come here. And this time of year, Lord, is depressing for them. I pray that your peace would be strongly felt in our hearts today. That for those that have no family, those that have no home, you would create for them a home by your Holy Spirit. We're asking that you would be present in this place as we gather around the things that you have said to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, I set out on a mission to formulate for myself the perfect roommate situation. I had formulas, I had strategies, I had pie charts, I had everything. Everything needed to formulate for myself the perfect roommate situation with the perfect roommates. I discovered one guy uh, who was dating someone who was a friend of someone who had all the same interests that I had. We both liked to climb. We both listened to the same music. Uh, We um, both were into film. He was into film. I was into photography. We had all of these things in common. Uh, He had another friend who had all the same things that we had in common. And to top it off, we were all Christians. And everybody knows that all you have to do is be a Christian for everybody to get along perfectly. And so there was my formula. And so we rented an apartment together. 
uh, in the downtown area, and, and at first it was, it was actually as good as you would expect it to be. We formulaically, mechanically put together the perfect roommate situation, and for the first few weeks, we did everything together. We did all of the stuff that we were passionate about and that we loved, uh, but it, it, it got to a place where because we had so much in common, there was absolutely no privacy. We were always doing the same things together. I couldn't, I couldn't get them out of my face. We are together every single day doing the same things. Not only that, but we started to discover that we each had our own individual quirks. Go figure. One of my roommates was, started to get annoyed with my, my antics in the kitchen and just leaving piles of my I, I used to hoard stuff and just make piles and not clean them up, and he was just aggravated, but he was passive-aggressive, so he wouldn't say anything about it, but he would just go into the uh, kitchen and just begin to grumble and complain about that hypothetical person that keeps the kitchen messy. I, meanwhile, was the type, type of person that wouldn't tell you anything if it bothered me. I'd just keep it kind of locked up inside for safekeeping until it began to fester, and one day, all three of us destroyed our perfect roommate situation by being human, and we just devoured each other. It all began to fester and come to the top, and we exploded, and we got to a point where we had to pull one another away from each other. We ran off into our rooms in a huff. It was like we were children, like we were 12 years old, but we weren't. We were 20. We apologized to one another, but we parted ways after that. Each uh, one of my roommates moved across the country. The other guy moved across the state. I moved into my own apartment by myself to try to work into my system of life, the perfect roommate situation by myself. <laughs> I didn't understand. These are actually some of my close friends. And what seemed to be the perfect roommate situation came to a crashing halt as soon as we begin to open our mouths. Perhaps some of you have felt the same way, maybe not in an apartment with college students, but maybe in a marriage with that one person that you thought would be perfect and would never argue with you ever. It's December and you're arguing. Perhaps you felt that way about your kids. Your kids in your mind would grow up to be perfect and do everything that you told them to do and never complain about anything, and they tend to do that. Perhaps you have been looking for that in the church. You've been looking for the perfect roommate situation in the church, and you have found that people seem to be more broken and more screwed up and messed up in the church than they were outside. I believe that what Paul would say in verse 25 is that something has been missing in all of those all along. I think from verse 25, which is very simple, we can pull out at least three things. And we'll talk about each of these three things as we go. He talks about honesty. He talks about concern. And he talks about covenant. If Paul were to analyze my relationships with those college students and my relationships with my wife and my relationships with uh, my friends and my relationships in community and in community groups, I believe that from this verse he would analyze three things, honesty, concern, and covenant. Here's what I mean by honesty. I'm speaking more about a culture of honesty, a culture of truth-telling. He says in verse 25, uh, Paul says, Since you put away lying, 
Now notice he's not saying, okay, now that you are converted to the Christian faith, I want you to try to not do that anymore if it meets your fancy. He's speaking about something that has taken place in the, in the past. Based on your conversion to Christ, I am assuming that you have put away this old way of life, which includes lying. Now, when we say lying, we're not talking about anything complex or complicated. It's it's exactly as you would expect it to be. The verbal misrepresentation of facts. It is to intentionally deceive someone. It is to intentionally mislead someone. It is, in its most simple form, the misleading, the misrepresentation of facts. Now, it could take the form of flattery, right? You are doing what? You are, when you flatter someone, you are misrepresenting that person in a positive light. Perhaps you don't meet it. You're talking to your boss. Hey, you look great today. No, you don't. But I want favors. You are misrepresenting the facts to a person. Closely related to flattery is slander. When flattery is positively misrepresenting the facts about someone, slander is negatively misrepresenting the facts about someone. Speaking about someone behind their back in a negative fashion. Hypocrisy is closely related. That is misrepresenting the facts about yourself. That is either speaking about yourself in a way that you don't plan to live out or acting in a way that doesn't match what you say about yourself. Then, of course, there's plagiarism. That is misrepresenting your work or someone else's work. It's the misrepresentation of reality. Now, underlying almost all of those, no matter what facet or what form either one of these takes, is a simple burden that we have a desire to be approved by someone else. Examine any one of those things. Why do we flatter other people? We want them to approve of us. If I tell my boss that they have this splendid haircut and I don't actually mean it, I'm not just spouting flattery because I'm a flatterer. I want a job promotion, or I want a raise, or I want them to think well of me. Why do, we, uh, why do we slander people? Perhaps one of the reasons is that we would like other people who are slandering them and uh, admiring their reputation too to think well of us. Hypocrisy. Why do we place ourselves in a light that is not true to who we actually are? Well, we want people to think that we are someone that we are not. Why do we plagiarize? We want people to think that we are more skilled, more successful, more intelligent than we actually are. At the bottom line of almost all of these is a desire deep-seated within the heart of man and woman to be approved by other people. Whether we misrepresent the facts about others or we misrepresent the facts about ourselves, or the situation at hand. We want people to approve of us. Now, that's not always the case. Perhaps we tell lies or we intentionally mislead because truth is too costly. Perhaps to tell the truth in a certain situation means that you're going to lose a lot of money or you're going to lose a certain uh, objective or an opportunity. In that case, You have lost control of the situation. We mislead because we are out of control. So whether we are out of control of a situation or we are out of control of what people uh, think about ourselves, the bottom line is we want to feel better about ourselves. And so we mislead others to think something that is not true. Paul comes along and he says, they used to be your way of life because Your reputation was one of futile thinking. You were of a futile mind, he would say in the earlier verses. 
but I would rather that you speak the truth. Speak the truth is not any more complicated than it needs to be either. It's the opposite. It's to present or to be honest about the reality of the situation, that person, or yourself. It may mean speaking about another person in the right way. It may mean speaking to that person things that maybe are uncomfortable to say to that person that they really need to know. It may be speaking about yourself, things that you would rather not hear about yourself, confessing sin that you know lies deep down. Now, one caveat to this. Simply telling the truth does not get us off scot-free. Paul is not saying, instead of lying, just speak the truth and everything will be well for you. Because you can actually speak the truth in the wrong way. In fact, it's by the same motivations that we lie that you and I can find ourselves speaking the truth. Why do we lie? Because we desire other people's approval. You can tell the truth for that same motivation. This is often why and how I've noticed in myself why I sometimes come off harsh when I say true things to other people, why I sometimes come off as judgmental or even condemning when I say stuff to other people that is not a lie but is in fact true. Why? Because there is something deep set within me that wants to know that I am right. So perhaps I become a little zealous about it. Or perhaps I want to compare myself to other people or to that person. You might notice yourself steamrolling people, even though you're saying what needs to be said. You're not speaking the truth in love. You're speaking from a deep-set motivation. You want other people's approval. If you were to let that carry out to its logical conclusion, you might find yourself gossiping. What is gossip? Gossip is telling the truth. (laughs) Telling the truth that ends up damaging the reputation of another person. It starts off in a a swell light. uh, Gossip is speaking the truth, telling the truth about someone in such a way that damages their reputation. Why do we do that? Perhaps it's because we want to be in the know. Perhaps it's because we want to feel a little more holy than we actually are. Perhaps we want to be the one that has exposed the sin of the sinner. Whatever the reason is, we want to feel better about ourselves. So regardless of whether you are lying or speaking the truth from a sinful motivation, both of them have to do and stem from an issue of deep-seated selfishness. So whether you lie or whether you speak the truth in the wrong way, it is probably coming from an issue of selfishness, which is why to simply change your behavior does nothing. To simply say, okay, everybody who calls themselves a Christian, stop lying and tell the truth. Bow your heads with me and pray. (laughs) To simply change your behavior does nothing because those behaviors come from the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. To simply stop lying does nothing when the heart is riddled with selfishness. That's why Paul doesn't end there. Paul actually phrases the sentence to expose the sinful heart. Notice that he doesn't end there. He doesn't say, you put away lying, so now speak the truth. He actually says, since you put away lying, speak the truth, comma, each one to his neighbor, 
because we are members of one another. And in one sentence, Paul places the motivation outside of ourselves onto a concern for others. This is the second point. He places the burden of speaking the truth not on ourselves, but on a concern for others, each one to his neighbor. In other words, truth must be told with the other person's benefit in mind. That must drive why we say everything that we say. Doing this, at least in Paul's mind, will expose my tendency to be harsh, our tendency to be gossips, our tendency to slander, our tendency to do or say anything that comes from a heart of selfishness. His very wording exposes the selfish heart. And Paul isn't really making this up. He's just borrowing this from the Old Testament prophets. In fact, all of Ephesians 4 and chapter 5 and even chapter 6 is a covenantal framework that Paul is taking from the Old Testament, Paul being a learned Jew. Most notably, he's speaking about the covenant community. What is a covenant? We talked about this in the past few weeks. A covenant is God stepping into a community of people, forming a community and saying, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people and this is how it's going to work well. This is how our relationship is going to work. I want you to do this and this and this and that is how you can worship me. That is how we can relate to one another. That's how this is going to thrive. Paul borrows this covenantal language from the Old Testament where it has its origin Probably seen most vividly in the Ten Commandments, right? The covenant of Moses. Now, if you were to look at the, the, the Ten Commandments, they might appear to you to be a bunch of abstract rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. But if you were to back off just for a moment, just to get a bird's eye view of those commands, you will begin to see a golden thread moving through all of those things that God commands us to do. And it comes from the theme of covenant. God wants to dwell with people and he wants to form a community out of people by which his presence can dwell. So what are the first few uh, commandments in those 10? They all have to do with our relationship with God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images, no idols. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath. They all have to do with our vertical relationship with God. What are the next six? Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Don't murder. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't lie. Or don't commit a falsehood against other people don't covet. What do these have to do with? These have to do with our horizontal relationships, how we are to live in community with our fellow man. And those human relationships flow out of our relationship with God, meaning the more intimate you are with your God, the more your earthly relationships will thrive. One flows out of the other. And you ever wonder, as you're reading some of these things, especially in the Old Testament and some of the things that Paul says, why is God so negative? Why does he always couch things in negative speak? You can actually look at the Ten Commandments and see that God cares 
uh, from a bird's eye view that the main point of the commandments, the main point of the covenant that we are to obey is that God wants us to love him and worship him and to love each other. That's why Jesus would come along and be asked, what's the most important commandment? Well, I'll summarize it like this. The most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. These summarize the law and the prophets. Love God, love people. That's everything. And so you could actually look at the Ten Commandments and see those being fleshed out. What does not committing adultery really mean except to honor marriage in the sight of God? Honor your father and mother. What does that mean except God's stamp upon the family structure? What does it mean not to steal except that God has said each person has a right to their own belongings? What does it mean not to lie or to commit a falsehood against somebody except, uh, other than God saying, every person who has been made in my image has a right to their own reputation? Don't kill, don't murder. What does that mean except to say that God, everyone who he has made in his image has the right to live? So God is really, in an old-fashioned way, laying out Divine social justice and basic human rights. This is what it looks like when people are in community where my presence resides. Why doesn't he just say that? Why do you say, thou shalt not do this and thou shalt not do that? Why doesn't he just say, everyone has their own right to belongings? This is why. If God were to command me with my selfish tendencies, Chris Lazo, you have the right to your own belongings. Do you know how I would handle that? I would filter it through my own individualistic, selfish tendencies, and I would say, I totally do. I, I have stuff that belongs to me. Don't touch. Don't touch this. Don't touch that. That is mine. Protect it. Get away. I have my own reputation. Be careful. Don't speak about me. Be careful what you say. Are you gossiping? Come on, watch your back now. But God couches these laws and these commands in a negative connotation so that a person like me will come along and have no choice except to read into it a concern for other people other than myself. It's no longer I have belongings, it's you have belongings and I need to honor that. It is no longer I have this reputation, it is now you have a reputation and my goal is to honor yours. It is no longer I have been made in the image of God. It is now my brothers and sisters are made in the image of God. How does that change the way that I live? The Ten Commandments, even in the way that they are worded, exclude, or rather they expose the selfishness in the human heart. And that's what Paul would later say. The law points our sin out. The covenant community, when everybody is obeying everything that God says should cause human flourishing and uphold every type of social justice in perfection. How would that even look like? I'm just going to pick on one of these things, gossip. You have a friend or a brother or a, a college student or a relative who is living in sin. How do you go about speaking truth into their life? Paul says, speak the truth in love. How do you go about speaking the truth in love without gossiping? You ever done that? You're like, okay. I just saw so-and-so. I just saw Chris Lazo at the so-and-so place. and I don't know what he was doing, but he looked super sketchy. 
I better tell 10 people that are filled with the Spirit. And they can email a prayer chain to everybody they know so that we could be praying for Gazzazzo in his sin. And I will keep tabs with my binoculars in case he stumbles. You know, there's like a fine line between gossip and actually caring for one another. And to the truth be told, that is a subtle fine line. I don't think I can say to you right now, there is a formulaic, mechanical way to determine the difference between gossiping and actually speaking the truth. And there are some exceptions, right? If somebody is being hurt, if there's a crime involved, that's an exception. You do whatever you got to do. You call the authorities, you call everybody you know, you call on the telephone. There's some exceptions. You don't, you don't call me on the phone <laughs> and, and, and ask for an appointment. If somebody is getting hurt, there's certain things that you do. Well, in the same way, there's certain things that you do if someone is sinning against you. This, I think, is an exception. This is what we're being told about when we're speaking about gossip. I think Jesus outlined it perfectly in Matthew chapter 18 about what it looks like to live according to covenant principles. If Chris Lazo is sinning against somebody else, what do I do about it? Well, Jesus would say the person who is being sinned against should go uh, uh, up to the person who is singing, sinning against them and relationally hash it out. In other words, don't tell a hundred people. But as it escalates, if they don't receive, there is a time where you grab somebody that you trust and you're like, hey, can you help me out with this? Can we pray for that person? Can we approach them? In other words, there is this relational escalation in which the person is being cared for and loved by. Truth-telling in love is necessary for a healthy community to exist. When we are not speaking truth to one another in love, things begin to break down. And this isn't even something that Christians necessarily find unique to their, uh, their faith. People outside of the church got this down. People outside of the church know that without a sense of trust, without a sense of truth involved in relationships, things start to get a little sketchy. An example of this is the late Jane Jacobs who is a famous urban planner and community activist. Her most famous work that she wrote was called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And her whole life story revolved around the sense that as cities were growing and there was urban decay and there was a, a lack of trust, the only way that it could work is if neighbors started to learn how to trust one another. So she writes this book and she begins to hash out the bottom line is the person across the street needs to trust their next door neighbor. How do we make this happen? And she begins to write out her, her own theories. Well, the streets need to be shorter uh, so that the walking distance is closer. There needs to be street lights. There needs to be a thriving nightlife so that there's always people. There needs to be a shop corner with groceries so that uh, families congregate there. And there needs to be a music place here so that everyone gets. And she starts to develop this theory all centered around one thing. In order for my kids to be safe in this bustling city, my neighbors and I need to know each other and trust each other and speak truth into one another. We need to get past that tendency that we have to say, well, I guess there's a, uh, something's happening at that store down the street. I guess these other seven people that are watching will do something about it. Get past that in order to say, no, that is my neighbor made in the image of God. I am going to do something about this. I am going to speak up. I am going to take ownership over this. And that was her whole dream, her whole goal. 
she wrote in her book, Casual Public, uh, Casual Public Contact by People, the constant speaking and interaction and mutually concerned uh, nature of, of people in friendship cultivates what she called a feeling for the public identity of people, a web of public respect and trust, and a resource in time of personal or neighborhood need. Listen to this. But the absence of this trust is a disaster to a city street. And I would say it's the disaster for a marriage, and a disaster for a family, and a disaster for a suburban home, and a disaster for a calm group, and a disaster for your neighborhood, and a disaster for a church community. And it doesn't matter how thriving or how beautiful a city is, it doesn't matter how beautiful a church's building looks, if people cannot trust each other enough to speak truth into one another's lives things begin to break down. Societies and communities are built on a level of trust. Jane Jacobs was simply touching on what God wrote thousands of years earlier. But you actually need more than just truth-telling and concern for your neighbor in order for this to happen. You need covenant. Paul actually, in a twist of irony, plagiarizes a prophet in the verse that he's speaking. He talks about not plagiarizing or lying. He's quoting Zechariah chapter 8. He's quoting the prophet Zechariah. Anytime a New Testament writer quotes someone from the Old Testament, they're doing it for a specific reason. They are showing the reader that what the Old Testament prophet promised would come to pass is somehow coming to its fulfillment in what that New Testament author is writing. So if we were to read this, we would have to say, what was the prophet Zechariah writing that Paul is saying is coming to pass in the person of Jesus Christ? If you were to read through Zechariah, you would see one theme. Men and women who are called of God who have been exiled, why? Why? They've been pushed out of their neighborhood. They have been cut off from the family of God. Why? Because they couldn't obey the commands of God. They couldn't obey the covenant that they had been brought into by the Lord. They were saying the same thing that some of us are saying today. Oh, all I have to do is speak the truth and not lie easy. I can do that right now. All I have to do is be a good Christian. I'm there already, bro. All I have to do is be holy and righteous and perfect, and I think I've achieved. How many of us, even if we wouldn't say that, at least have a sense of confidence that we're close to that level? The Israelites would have said the same thing. In fact, they did. God would say, if you do these things, you shall live. If you fail to do them, you will die. All of these things that have been written, we shall do. Oh, really? Centuries later, Zechariah was written after Israel continued and continued and continued to fail at obeying the word of the Lord. The problem that Paul is exposing is not you have a problem with lying. He's saying your problem is that you are a sinner. 
it is impossible for you to do anything that is absolutely holy and perfect. And when he quotes Zechariah, he quotes him by saying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor. He is going directly to the fulcrum and the center of Zechariah in chapter 7 and chapter 8, where after uh, the people of God have been excluded from the promises of God because of their disobedience, God says, I now will bring to pass what you failed to do in your sin. I myself will bring you into community. I will establish a holy community where my presence will dwell and I will call it, get this, the city of truth. The, the new Jerusalem will be called the city, of uh, the city of truth. They will be my people. I will be their faithful and righteous God. What is he saying? There will come a point where after all of your failure, I will step into your business and do what you could not do and you will reap the benefits of a supernatural community that God creates by the power of the gospel. The problem is not behavior modification. God ain't saying, hey church, stop lying and you're golden for the next week. If you could just do that until New Year's, then you could start some new uh, resolutions when January comes along. But you know, baby steps. He's saying you need a complete overhaul. He's saying your lying comes from something deep-seated within the heart, the selfish nature of men and women. Our problem is we do and love things like social justice. We do good things to our neighbor. We buy each other's groceries. We invite people over to eat. We give people cl the clothing off our back. We love our neighbor. We do good to others. But underlying our concern for one another is a deeper love for ourself. I don't know how you feel about this, but if I were completely honest with myself, though I hate to admit it, I do love myself more than anybody else on the face of the earth. I prove that by my actions, by my thoughts. This is a dichotomy. This is why my perfect roommate situation did not work. It's not because we didn't have enough in common. It's not because they weren't great guys. It was because all three of us were selfish and we didn't want to let that piece of us go. And when you put three selfish people together, you get a mess. When you put a thousand selfish people together, you get something entirely different. When Paul quotes Zechariah, he is hinting to you something. He is saying, that which was promised that we cannot achieve by simply speaking better. That dwelling in which Christ himself dwells is fulfilled in Christ himself. The only way heavenly community can exist in a fallen earth is when the gospel breaks through the selfishness of the hearts of men and women. The only way that this will ever work is if the gospel breaks through to our hearts. The gospel itself breaks the dichotomy that we are faced with by establishing trust in relationships because they are, for the first time ever, being brought into a new covenant, not the covenant of Sinai, but the Abrahamic covenant where God said, I will do this, Abra uh, Genesis chapter 15. I will walk through the pieces by myself. I will carry out the sacrifice. I will bring to you the promises. I will secure everything that you need for your salvation. I will also establish a holy community. 
by the power of God and the finished work of Christ on the cross where a person as screwed up as me can come along and say, you know what, I do everything wrong. I told a lie the other day. I was deceptive. I was a hypocrite. I was everything that I hate about myself. But Christ's blood washes away my sins. And when I wake up on Monday morning, it will wash those sins away for his mercies are new every morning. And that does something to the human heart that changing your behaviors could never do. You know what that does to you? It causes you to say, if God approves of me in Christ, I can speak truth into my neighbor's heart. I can speak truth into my brother. I can speak truth into my best friend, even though it's hard, even though I've got to tell, thing, tell them things that I'm uncomfortable with because I have no fear of losing their approval. I am approved by Christ. And the person on the opposite end of that hard truth can say, hey, I ain't sweating this. I can receive construction. I can receive it because I want to be more like Jesus and I'm not going to be stumbled by this. I'm not going to be steamrolled by this. I'm not going to take it in the self-esteem because even in my sin, even in what I'm getting rebuked in, I am approved by Christ and Christ alone. We can speak not just harshly, not condemning, not judgmentally, judgmentally, We can speak in love because we understand that the person on the opposite end of our words is more important than the content and the way and the things that we have to get across to them. In doing so, you will find that by the power of the gospel, the gospel begins to create and cultivate a culture of trust and truth that is impossible apart from the finished work of Christ. And you'll find that even when we're sharing hard truths, when you're speaking into each other's lives truth, when you're confessing your sin to one another, things that you ordinarily would be ashamed of, things that would push you away from one another, you will find that by the power of the gospel, you are not being pushed away, but you are being pulled together in an organic community that is called the church and the body of Christ. See, our ultimate problem is not behavior. Our problem lies in the heart that as Paul would say in Romans chapter one, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We can't love truth, we exchanged it for lies. And we did so in order to preserve our reputation, but Christ gives up his reputation to die for liars and sinners and thieves and hoodlums and scoundrels. And the way that he does it as John would declare, is he is not just the speaker of truth, he is the living word of truth, being spoken through the mouth of God into the darkness of sinners. Real freedom, then, comes not when we stop trying to lie or trying to not lie, but when we adorn ourselves with the truth that we know about Jesus Christ. He begins to peel away the desires he used to have. You simply walk into it and enjoy the new nature that he gave you. We also understand, this is my last point. We understand that as we wake up on Monday morning, some of us spend our lives together. We are leaving Sunday morning with the trees and the lights and the music and the ethereal atmosphere and the smiles and the croissants, and all the perfect roommate situation stuff that we hoard around ourselves to 
that feel really good, you know? We can easily turn Sunday morning into a perfect church bubble, our ideal situation. But Monday is where real community happens, and that's where we hurt each other's feelings. And December is one of those months. Ironically, Christmas and New Year's, the holiday season, is that month where some of you begin to dig up some of that old hurt, that old pain between relatives, between friends, between spouses. The list goes on. And those things will not disappear. People will still offend you. People will still betray you. People will still disappoint you and let you down. I will disappoint you and let you down. We will do that to each other because we are still broken and fallen people. One of the unique things about Christianity that sets itself apart from any other worldview is that every other worldview of thinking, what Paul would call in the uh, middle of chapter four is the futile way of thinking, is that everyone else's hope is in the present. Everyone else's hope is in what I can accomplish right now. It's in what I can do to make myself a better person. It's what I can achieve for myself. Every other worldview is centered around the present, what I can do now. Christianity's hope is centered around the future. It says that I can do what, uh, be, uh, what happens later affects what I do now. Where everything else says what I do now affects my future, Christ comes in and says what you do, uh, excuse me, what happens later affects your behavior now. So we look forward to the day that God will make all things new. He will restore broken families. He will restore broken marriages perfectly. And even though we cannot taste of that perfection yet, we walk in it striving for it, tasting of what he allows us to do by the new natures in us. We allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to spill over into each other's lives. That's what you are called to do tomorrow morning, is to take the gospel in that way out into the world. You have no hope out there except for the promise of Jesus Christ. Is your hope in the future? I just did a funeral this week for my uncle when he was on his deathbed, he looked at my dad after 70 years of life and 70 years of mistakes and sin, and he said to my, my dad, his younger brother, I'm ready to go home now. I want to see Nana, his mom, my grandma. I'm ready. Some people on their deathbeds will have a look of terror. Some people will have fear and apprehension because they have no hope. Some people will stand or sit or lie on their deathbeds with a sense of hope. Why? Because their hope is not in the present, in the frailty of their bodies, in the brokenness of their relationships. Their hope lies in the future. Brothers and sisters, is that where your hope lies? Is your hope in the last days when Christ will come himself and show you his glory? If it's not, I encourage you to look into the past when he died on the cross for your sins and promised by his resurrection that he would make all things new. If the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart in that way, I encourage you to repent of all sins that entangle you and be refreshed in the presence of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we ask today that you would teach us as believers, as sons and daughters of the Most High King to put on Jesus Christ, to adorn Christ and make no provision 
for the flesh. And Lord, we, we need help with that, Lord. You know who we are. You know that we're, you know our frame. You know that we're just dust. But you are faithful and true. There is no one like you in the heavens or on earth. You alone are the one that declares to your people, you will be my people and I will be your faithful, righteous God. When you are faithless, I will remain faithful. God, we need a God like that in this season to display himself as the only one that we can trust and by that trust to change the way that we think about life. We ask that you would cause us to marinate in the beauty of the gospel today. In Jesus' name, amen.